thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we're going to look at the epilogue, the last segment in the book of Revelation, starting from uh, uh, Revelation 22.6 through 22.21. Um, for many of us, it's been quite a journey through this book, from the very first time when we started looking at it, to today. I hope that by now, some of the mystery has been unraveled for you. The book no longer looks like some sort of a concoction made to get us curious about the end times. Rather, it is an essential part of Scripture. It tells us so much about the liturgy, about Jesus, how He is governing the world, how He governs the church, the role of the church as the bride of Christ, and the importance of the covenant, which is the, way, the means through which Christ is ruling over the world. And we are going to see that again repeated today in the epilogue. So follow with me, if you have your Bibles, in chapter 22, verse 6. And he said to me, that's the angel. Remember, the angel who had one of the seven angels who, hold, who held the, uh, the bowls of wrath. That's one of them. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am, am he who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brethren, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, second time, bringing my recompense to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers 
and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who is thirsty come, let him who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things say, says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. This conclusion in its structure is a seal. It's a legal seal that authenticates the entire prophecy. How do we know that? The very first three verses, we hear the angel who testifies, we hear St. John who testifies, and then we hear the Lord himself testifying. Three testimony by three witnesses. In Jewish law, you need what? The witnesses of two concurrent. You need the witness of two. Con you need two concurrent witnesses, two saying the same thing. You don't need. It's not enough to have two. They have to say the same thing, right? If one said I stole an apple, the other said I stole an orange. It's not valid, right? And here we we see the Lord. An angel, representative of the angelic, um, of the angelic, um, if you will, the angelic order in heaven, and then Saint John, an apostle, found a, 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 um, a foundation stone of the church. All three of them repeating the same thing. So it's an official seal. And the reason why it's an official seal is because effectively the entire book of Revelation acts as a covenantal lawsuit. Where, as we saw in the letters, the Lord Christ comes and walks among the churches and inspects them and issues these warnings. Repent or else. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. And then with the seals... We have the same thing, but spoken to the world through nature, no longer through direct spoken words, as we had in the letters. And proceeding from there, we saw with the trumpets and with the bowls that punishments and final curses are applied to those who do not abide by the word of the Lord. Recall that this is an entire prophecy. It hasn't happened yet. By the time we get to the epilogue, none of that has taken place. So it is reinforced that everything in this book, everything is true, and it's reinforced according to the covenant in blessings and in curses. We hear... 
in verse 14, the seventh and final beatitude, or seventh and final blessing in the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. And we also hear later on that if anyone takes away from the words of the book, God will take away his share in the tree of life. If anyone adds to it, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. This is standard covenantal language. And I've mentioned that to you a number of times. I've explained why when we go to court, we'll put our hands on the Bible and we swear which means we take an oath, right? I swear to say the truth, nothing but the truth, so help me. What did we do right now when we said the word God? You shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Commandment number one. I just said, so help me, God. If I am vain, if I took the name of the Lord in vain, what is going to happen to me? May all the curses recorded in this book come upon me. Because I violated the first commandment. But if I am true to God, I am true to the first commandment, then may all the blessings recorded in this book come upon me. That is why we put our hands on the Bible. The covenant is the cornerstone, the cornerstone of our entire judicial system. And when our understanding and belief in the covenant crumbles, the entire judicial system crumbles as well. For then we are left with what? Trusting a devious creature called man. Hmm? So you see the covenantal language as structured here. Often you've heard me speak of Christ not only as the source of mercy, but also as the source of justice. You can see this in this text that if we were to only look at Christ as the source of justice, we would not be able to properly explain this text. For how can we consider a God who is only merciful, how can we accept from Him words such as these? I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. This is Christ speaking. Okay? You can see that without his justice, this book, and I would argue the entire scripture, becomes obscured, truncated, falsified. It is the covenant that God established with us that really allows us to enter into a true relationship with God. In truth, we will worship. That is key. Now, this epilogue links back, of course, to the prologue. Why? Because both the prologue and the epilogue identify the book as a communication from God. Both highlight St. John as a witness to the revelation he has received. Both emphasize that the revelation is a prophecy communicated to 
hearers. And the introduction pronounces a blessing on all those who obey the prophecy. The interesting thing about the conclusion is that it is emphatic in the curse it pronounces on those who do not obey the prophecy. This is how the two are connected. It's a whole and it's closed. It's effectively a legal document following the structure of this covenantal lawsuit. The words come and coming, erkomai in the Greek, are used seven times in this chapter to reinforce the the notion that this is a covenant. The purpose of the book is stated once more. Holy obedience to God's will for final reward. And that purpose is broken into five exhortations. What is the purpose then of the conclusion? Is the purpose of it is to address who? It is to address Catholics. Let me be very emphatic. In the time of St. John, as he writes, he has seven churches in Asia Minor who are under dress. They are being persecuted from without, from the Jewish temple. As we see when the temple is persecuting, first they sent Saul, who is converted, but the persecution continues. They're persecuted from without from the Roman Empire. And then from within, they have heresies they're already facing. The faithful in these communities who were back then as confused and as worried and as concerned as we are today when we face similar conditions. We're wondering, what is God up to? And God answers. That's what I'm up to. I am up to something that you cannot even think of. I want to bring this good news to the four corners of the world. I want to open up the gates of heaven to people of all nations. And my way of doing it is through your faithful suffering. You make my rule happen. I rule through you. Not because I need you, not because you're my hands or my feet or my head or my mouth or whatever. God is sovereign. He needs none of us. But because I chose you from the beginning, from before the foundation of the world, so that I may share my glory with you. That's why. And the more we penetrate into the mystery of the cross, the more we accept the mystery of the cross, not only as the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but as the source, the key that unlocks the meanings of our lives, the more we understand this point of view. The more we become like Christ. That our lives take their meaning and their conclusion in and from the cross. And that is no coincidence. And it isn't done to punish us. But it is truly an act of love on the part of God. 
For just as individuals like ourselves have a really hard time understanding why we suffer personally, communities back then, as today, have a really hard time understanding why we're going through all this confusion. Why are the Christians persecuted in Iraq? Why are the Christians persecuted in the Middle East? Why it seems that the Muslims are more trafficked than we are? How come this and how come that? Because both of these, at the end, and in the end, are connected intimately with the mystery of the cross. Because in failure, we overcome. In death, we live. That's the royal way to heaven. And there is no other. And so when we rise up manfully and say to Christ, I will share your sufferings, hold my hand, we've become to reign. We conquer. And as long as we skirt death and skirt suffering and we're afraid of them, we are conquered. That is the application of the book of Revelation to our own personal lives and the moral reading. That's the summary of it. So in this period of Advent, that is a perfect occasion That's a perfect occasion to look at our lives and see those areas where we have not yet surrendered. Those areas that we are latching on, that we want to keep to ourselves because we're afraid, we are afraid of suffering. Suffering, the fear of suffering keeps us locked in, keeps us slaves to our desires, to the flesh, to the world, and to Satan. And Christ has come to free us Precisely from that fear. Precisely from that fear. Be not afraid. What were we afraid of? Winning the lotto? We should be afraid of winning the lotto. Judging by the track record. That's a different subject. But what are we afraid of? Suffering. Right? Loneliness. Physical pain. Mental pain. Losing somebody. Dying. And we don't realize how this suffering, this fear of suffering, keeps us shackled to this world. It's a way of saying, this is Sodom, and I want to look back. If nothing else, this meditation will help you understand the wife of Lot. And hopefully you won't judge her as harshly. So many of us are just like her. Because to her, leaving Sodom was what? Suffering. What made her look back? The fear of suffering. Let's go through those five exhortations. There are five exhortations to holiness. Verse, the first one, verse 6 and 7. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. When, when... Can you tell me of an occasion where God has sent His angel to tell someone something? 
We're not there yet with Our Lady. Zechariah, right? Gabriel stood before Zechariah. And he told him, your wife is going to be with child. Right? Do you think the word of Gabriel was trustworthy and true? Was, right? I, I, I just want to illustrate. I want, you to, I want to show you how we tend to glaze over these words. These words are trustworthy and true. Yeah, sure. Honey, pass me the sugar. Whatever. Think, think, think of Zechariah. I always think of him. Because I always ask myself, what would I have done if I was in his shoes? Of course, oh, wow, you, I mean, come on, he saw an angel. How could he say no? Well, you can see the angel, you can see Jesus himself. If rationally you decided not to believe, nothing will make you believe. All the angels of heaven will not make you believe. Right? Gabriel showed up and told him, these words are trustworthy and true. He didn't believe, did he? And what happened to him? Yeah. And what do you think he thought when he was mute? Say, so, sorry? That he deserved that, yeah. What else? Yeah, but he probably said at one point, God really loves me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I'm mute. Thank you, Lord. I'm mute. What did he deserve? I mean, we, we don't really take time to really think about it, but what did he do when standing before the altar of incense offering prayers? He's offering prayers. His prayer is answered. And what does he do? Do you understand the enormity of what's going on here? He doesn't believe. Right? He doesn't believe. What does he deserve? He deserves to be cut off. And instead, he gets a mild slap on the hand. God loves him. Right? Likewise, you're now Zechariah facing the words of the angel. These words are recorded in Scripture for your edification. The words that the angel has spoken in heaven back then to St. John, he's speaking to you today. These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophet, has sent his angel to show his servants, not servant, not St. John, servants, what must soon take place. What must soon take place. These words are trustworthy, are faithful and true, refers to Isaiah 65, 16. If you know the book of Isaiah, you know that chapter 65 and 66 are really important because these are the closing chapters that speak of the coming of the bride. It is the book of victory. All right? 
So just as when the Pharisees went to St. John and asked him, Who are you? Are you the Messiah? And St. John answered and said, I am the voice of one who speaks in the wilderness. He was quoting from chapter 40, the book of Isaiah, which is the beginning of the book of Restoration. There was no coincidence. So, in Isaiah 65, 16, we see expressed confidence in God's forthcoming act of new creation. Likewise, we find an echo in Daniel chapter 2.45. The dream is certain and its interpretation is true. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar had had this dream, no one could interpret it to him. And I brought Daniel, he heard the dream and he said, The dream is certain and the interpretation I'm going to give you is true. So these are both affirmations, one of the new creation in Isaiah and the other of the passing of the world of Babylon, the new Babylon, meaning the passing of the, of the old age and the beginning of the new age. That's what's hidden behind these words. These words are trustworthy and true. There is another allusion which is made to Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, 29, 45. And 22.6, the great God and 22.6 in Revelation, right? So Daniel chapter 2 and Revelation 22. The great God made known to the king what must come to pass after these things. And the Lord God showed to his servants what must come to pass quickly. Right? So in both cases, we have an, an, an allusion to Daniel. Interestingly enough... The king of Babylon is now substituted by whom? For whom? Who's, who replaces the king of Babylon in this case? The servants. You and I. The allusion to the reign of the Christians in Christ. The Lord, the God of the spirits, seems like a strange expression, right? And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets. Why not the Lord, the God of the prophets? So one possible translation is the Lord, the God ruling over or inspiring the spirits of the prophets. Which, mean, which it, it could mean the Lord God inspiring all those with prophetic gifts in Old and the New Testament. In number 21... Verse 27, we see the same expression, the Lord of the spirits, in the context of the passing of power from Moses to Joshua. The same expression is used as there is this passing from the, 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 the Moses to Joshua. Moses represents who? The Old Testament. And Joshua is the symbol pointing to Jesus, the New Testament. And here we see in that expression a passing from the prophetic powers of the Old Covenant to the prophetic powers in the New Covenant, represented by St. John. Christ, in verse 7, repeats, I am coming soon. And we've talked about His coming, not the physical second coming, but the visitation. The visitation as understood in the ancient, among the ancient, would be when a, a general who has already conquered a city and had established a covenant with the city goes on to conquer other cities and eventually to test the 
allegiance and fidelity of the citizens of that city he had conquered, he comes back suddenly. He apocalypses. He appears. He's revealed. To do what? To determine whether they are faithful to the covenant or not. That's what's indicated behind the I am coming soon. Right? So it's the visitation that Jesus will do under the guise of political powers. Under the guise of economic powers. Because all of that is under His dominion. These are all ways through which Christ indicates how He rules. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. What does it mean to keep the words of the prophecy of this book? Does it mean you take it, put it in a safe in the bank, you just keep it, you hold on to the key, put it on your neck? Is that what it means? Does it mean taking the book, you know, boiling it with water, drinking the water? What does it mean to keep the words? Act accordingly, believe. To live it. Yes, all those are absolutely true. Pass it on, share it, very, very good. There's one aspect that I'd like to bring your attention to in the context of Christmas. Our Lady. Mary kept all these things in her heart. So the very first, the very first and most important aspect of keeping is what? Loving. You want to keep this because... It's your insurance policy. Lord, I kept your word. Here it is. You want to keep it because you just want to go by the rules. You want to keep it because you're afraid if you don't, something will happen to you. I mean, all those are great. All those are good. Don't get me wrong. They're, 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 they're good because they are ways that really brings us to live an upright life, which is what God wants. But they're not the most pleasing to God. What is the most pleasing to God? That we truly, truly keep the words of Scripture in our heart simply because we delight in them. And for no other reason. And why do we delight in them? Because in them we see the face of Christ. That's why. That's, the, that's how Our Lady kept the words in her heart. In her case, it was really interesting because it was also about a pregnancy. And you women are ahead of us, men, because you can be pregnant. Last time I checked, we have uh, some deficiency in that department. So it's, it's word in flesh, right? It's really about love. First, and then everything else follows. So we have to avoid being purely, how should I say, legalistic about it. I'm going to do this and do that and the other and this because I'm asked to do it. It's great, you should do it, but know why you're doing it. The second exhortation from verse 8 through 10. I, John, am he who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. Hearing and seeing, key on these words. I mentioned that a number of times, right? Hearing and seeing are ways of expressing what? Openness to the words of God. 
openness to the Word of God. Not just watching it happen in front of me visually and getting the sound in my ears, but really taking it in. Keeping the Word requires me to hear and to see. Hmm? So John is emphatic, just as Luke was in his Gospel. Very emphatically, I, John, and he says his name because he knows that the community knows who he is. After all, all these churches were in his diocese, in Ephesus, right? I, John, am he who heard and saw these things. And when he heard them and saw them and understood them, he was overcome by awe. He was overcome by awe. He was awed. And when he was awed, he realized that this angel that is talking to him is a being who's been doing all these things for all these years. And he was truly awed by the sanctity and the holiness and the majesty and the glory of that angel. And he fell down at his feet not to worship him as in confusing him with God and adoring him as God, that's a mistaken understanding, but truly to give him a proper devotion. A proper devotion. Oftentimes, saints don't see their own glory because God is protecting them from the, the sin of, uh, of pride. And so they consider themselves wretched sinners. And when they are in the face of an angel, the light from the angel shines even more on their little sins, which under that light look like really big sins. And the distance between them and the angel grows in their eyes. And that's what's happening here. Understand the mystical reality. Don't think that somehow St. John got confused. And he just think, oh, this is Jesus. And he fell down to adore the angel as Jesus. That's not what's happening here. Because he emphatically repeated to us, and the angel who? So he had no doubt about the identity of this angel. This is not a sudden apparition, and he's confused. He's thinking it's the Lord. He knows it's the angel. He fell down because he felt that he was not worthy to stand next to this angel. Oh, how I wish we would treat our guardian angel a little bit more like that. That's why he fell. But the angel says, you must not do that. The more I think about that, the more my personal conviction is that this is not something that just applies to all Christians in general. True, we all have now the same dignity as that of an angel, theoretically. Theoretically, right? We still have to prove it by getting to heaven. But in the case of St. John, this is... Now, t turn the light around and think, think how the angel would look at St. John. Who is St. John? Okay, he's an apostle. Right, but what else? The beloved of Christ. And what else? What, is the, what, is, what did St. John do that angels didn't do? 
Take participation in liturgy, absolutely. He's a priest, right? But particularly this, right? None of the angels could claim, none of them could say, Mother, the way St. John can. So he has special dignity. He's got special dignity that none of us can claim. I mean, how many of us can claim that Our Lady lived under our, our, our roof while she was on earth? There are only two. Two who can claim that. Jesus and John. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. I'm just talking in this context. But thank you. We should never leave St. Joseph out. Sorry. Yes, but in, in terms of sonship, as a son, as daughters and sons, right? Because none of the other ones really can, can say of Our Lady, you know, my mom. In, in this direct sense that Christ and St. John could, right? So to me, what is going on here is really a discussion between two saints. I don't necessarily derived from it that this could apply to me. In other words, if I was standing there, the angel would tell me the same thing he would tell St. John. I find that to be a little bit too pretentious for me to make that kind of conclusion. I think if I was there instead of St. John, the angel would give me a shovel and said, start digging. You're not low enough. That's the difference. So not to take away from our Christian dignity, in heaven, yeah, but while we're on earth and we're struggling, let's not just compare ourselves too easily to someone of the caliber of St. John, the evangelist. Okay? Now, in verse 8, John is essentially telling us that I stand in a long line of prophets. This is no lightweight statement. He's basically saying, I am a prophet commissioned by God to bring to you the truth. And I stand in this long line of prophets. I am one of them. It is really interesting in verse 9 that uh, the angel says, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brethren, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Right? The brethren, your prophets. Basically, he's saying you and your brothers. Right? Do you think the angel is using this term lightly? Yo, bro, how are you? Is that what he's got in mind? Is, do you think this is what he's got in mind? This angel who held the bowl of wrath? I don't think so. When he says brothers, he means brothers. In heaven, Isaiah is a brother to Moses, who's a brother to Abraham. More so than blood brothers. Okay? And all of us, when we are walking around, we see a stranger who might be bothering us. I'd recommend we think twice before we say something to this person. Because you never know. You might be spending eternity with him. I mean, if truly the word was, were, was Catholic, and the understanding of what John Paul II called the solidarity... That's what he had in mind when he spoke of solidarity. Not just the, not just the, the, the labor movement solidarity in, 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 uh, in Poland. He meant that. 
that in heaven, in eternity, when all is said and done, we're going to have a lot of brothers and sisters we didn't think we have. If that was, this kind of conscience, illuminated the way we work and we deal with people today, think how many conflicts could be avoided. This is why the Catholic Church is necessary for the peace in the world. And without the Catholic Church, there can be no peace. Who will bring this idea of brotherhood to the people? If not, the only institution that Christ has created throughout the ages. In verse 10, St. John is told not to seal the words of this prophecy, for the time is near. An affirmation that the whole of this prophecy is to take place soon, not some parts of it. This is opposite to the prophecy in chapter 10, verse 4, when the seven thunders spoke, and St. John is told to seal up what the seven thunders have spoken. That's the only part in the book of Revelation which got sealed up, meaning not revealed. St. John didn't write down what the seven thunders spoke. He wasn't to reveal it, indicating thereby that the prophetic mission of the church will live throughout the ages. That throughout the ages, there will be times of prophecy where the word of God will be announced to us, not to reveal new truth, everything has been revealed, but to help us understand how it is to be applied in our own time. And exhibit A is Our Lady. Our Lady of Fatima, Our Lady of Lourdes, Our Lady of Guadalupe. All those prophetic mission that comes from the Queen of Prophets, not to tell us any new thing, but to point to us the areas where we as Catholics are deficient, because Mary speaks only to Catholics and to no one else. The third exhortation, 11 through 12. In 11, the angel says something rather really, really intriguing. And as a matter of fact, confuses a lot of, not a lot, quite a few interpreters, about 20, get confused by this. They don't know what to do with it. Let the evildoer still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. How do, you, how do we to understand this? What is he saying? Is he saying, you know, let it be? Just don't do nothing. Twiddle your thumb. Some, some um, commentators see in this complete predetermination, predestination. The evildoers are evildoers. There's nothing we can do about it. The filthy are filthy. There's nothing we can do about it. The righteous are righteous. There's nothing we can do about it. And the holy are holy. And there's nothing we can do about it. That's it. Do you think this is what's going on? I don't think so. This is to be understood covenantly. Right? What this is indicating to us is that the whole of humanity is governed by the covenant, by the new covenant. It's indicating to us that the reign of Christ extends to all. That none escapes the reign of Christ. The idea, therefore, is that whether someone is an evildoer, or a filthy, or righteous, or holy, they all stand before the throne of Christ. And He judges all, according to this covenant. According to this covenant. This is why, precisely why, 
the Catholic Church is necessary for the salvation of humanity. That's why. Because the church embodies this covenant that Christ established in his blood. What does that mean to us? It sh- this verse should lead us to a fundamental piece about the way we apprehend the world. If we see things covenantly, according to the covenant of Christ, we can understand why sometimes some of our efforts are sterile. They don't produce fruits. We can understand why sometimes evildoers seem to be having the upper hand. Precisely because Christ permits it. For greater judgment or for greater glory? For greater judgment, for greater glory. Therefore, the proper attitude, the proper missionary attitude of every Christian should be one of peace. What do I mean by that? I mean that I am not going to go out there and forcibly convert people. I am not going to go out there and and hit people on the head with the gospel. Although sometimes you wonder, you shouldn't be doing that. But... And, and if I engage someone with the word of God, I will act the way Jesus acted with the rich man. I will provide answers. I will explain the truth. I will defend the Catholic Church and explain why the church is right. In other words, I will try to the best of my abilities to bring what? The, the light of Christ. Right? What am I? I'm, I am a light bearer. That's all that I am. I'm not the light. Yeah, Christ said, you are the light. By this he means that when we're grafted to him, we become the light. But he's the source of light. All I do is I bring the light to somebody, right? But if someone doesn't want to read, there's nothing I can do. I should learn not to get frustrated why he's not reading, and not to get frustrated why he's not listening to me, and not to get frustrated for this and that or the other. Let the evildoers do evil, Let the filthy be filthy. Let the righteous be righteous. Let the holy be holy. Bring the light of Christ. That's your duty. And the rest, leave it up to God. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense to repay everyone for what he has done. Everyone. Everyone. In this specific context, it is connected to the particular situation they're going through. But today, in our lives, the same would apply. Everyone, according to what he has done. According to what he has done. We are not saved by our works. Works apart from Christ means absolutely nothing. They're dust of the earth. But faith informed by grace produce work. Works are the visible sign, the visible manifestation of the life of grace in us. That's why you are going to be judged according to what we're doing, not according to our intention. As we say, hell is paved with good intention. There nourish somebody who goes to hell who doesn't have good intentions. It's not enough to have good intentions. By the way, right there, you see the first affirmation of the divinity of Christ. Only God can repay in a proper Jewish understanding, no one else can repay, no one else can judge but God. And here's Christ saying this. But he doesn't stop there. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega. And as I told you last time, this is a metaphoric expression where you basically say, I am the totality of everything by holding the, the, the ends. When you hold the beginning and the end, you're holding the whole string. Right? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I mean, how, I, how, how much more divine confirmation do you need? All right? Why do we see three affirmations? The first one, Christ is omnipotent, for he has done all from beginning to the end. When he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, he doesn't simply mean, I got the whole thing in my hands. He means, I am the whole thing. The whole creation of the world happened through me. I wasn't sitting behind my dad who was doing all the work. I'm waiting for my, my time to come down here and become incarnate. And up to that point, I was just, you know, driving my car and just enjoying myself. Christ was engaged in the creative act from the very beginning. Christ is omniscient. He knows everything from the first to the last. Nothing escapes him. And then Christ is king across all ages. And these are the three reasons why he can be the one who justly brings recompense to each and every one of us. Because he created all things, he knows all things, and he is the just ruler. And that's why no one else has that authority to judge. Right? And oftentimes we get ourselves really you know, wrapped in knots around this business of judging. When we say, when Christ said, do not judge, he means do not arrogate to yourself divine authority to determine final destination of somebody. He doesn't mean by that you shouldn't exercise critical thinking. If somebody is about to sin, it is your duty to alert him. Yeah, you have to exercise judgment. You have to judge, whoa, that's wrong. I've got to tell him. That's utterly different from you being able to say, I know everything about you, I know where you're going. That's the kind of judgment that he said you're not about to do. All right. In verse 14, the seventh and final blessing with an allusion to Psalm 117, which is, if you recall, one of the psalms in the Hallel Psalms, sung during Passover at the temple. It first expresses most explicitly the nature of the covenant. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Who are the ones who are blessed? The ones who wash their robes. How do you wash your robes? First, you're baptized. Washing a robe always signified baptism in the water. And notice, he doesn't say, blessed are those who are 21 years old and wash their robes. Right? Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. That is why in all churches, the baptismal fount was outside the city by the gates. Because what gives you the right to enter the church is precisely this. You now have washed your robe in the waters of baptism. You can come through the gate. This is the New Jerusalem. 
You understand? A lot of the architecture of the churches were taken from the book of Revelation, by the way. Okay. So, you wash your robe signifies baptism. Of course, the water was purified by what? What made the water pure? Which is kind of the irony. It's the blood of Christ, right? So you wash your robe clean in the blood of Christ. Baptism gives rightful access to the tree of life. What is the tree of life? Yes, yes, in one sense, yes, but more specifically, Eucharist. See how without the church, without the sacrament, really difficult to understand all these symbols? Right? To most Protestants, these things happen in heaven. To us, it's right now. It's right now. You're baptized, you wash, you, you, you wash your robe, you're in a state of grace, you can approach the tree of life. Okay? To enter the, sea, the city by the gates, what does that mean to enter the city by the gates? Recall that the city had the names of the twelve tribes of Israel and had a foundation stone with the name of each apostle. What does that mean? If you enter the city by the gate, it means you didn't lay siege to the city. You didn't try to climb the wall. Who's allowed to enter the city by the gate? Someone who has the right passport, right? Who can show, I belong here, right? That's why, that's why it's so difficult to deal with this issue of children who die or not baptized. How are you going to circumvent that? What gives you entrance to the city? Baptism. Without baptism, good luck. Okay? So we all want to find a way to link the death of children who died without baptism to salvation. We all want to do that. The question is how? Yes, but be careful when you say that. God mercy. Because we tend to use God mercy as sort of a... as our um, catch-all. Catch-all, right? Somebody dies, he's in heaven because God is merciful. This happens, oh, God is merciful. Let's be careful. Yeah, we know God is merciful, but at the same time, He sets rules. He said Himself, that's how you're going to do it. He's not going to contradict Himself. Truth does not contradict itself. So, how how do we explain how a child who is not baptized and who died without the waters of baptism, right, who on his own does not merit heaven because he's under the pain of original sin, how could that person enter his heaven? And it's not enough to feel pity for the child. Because, after all, before the coming of Christ, there were many children who died in these conditions. We need to think about the glory of God. And how it works, I don't know. But I'm hoping that this commission that was set up by Pope Benedict XVI will be able to illuminate that. Then we can rejoice. All right. Now, the other important aspect. To enter the city means you're going to go to the city, right? And you're going to enter the city over and over again. So it requires continued perseverance on our part. We have to be persevering. St. John writes in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Right? So that's the key to the whole equation, perseverance. We persevere. Verse 15. Those who are accursed, now the flip side of the blessing, of course, is the curse. Right? And surprise, surprise, there are seven of them. Dogs, sorcerers, fornicators, murderers, idolaters, everyone who, pla- who loves and practices falsehood, deceit, hypocrisy, deception. Uh, I, I added, hold on, let me go back. <clears throat> Dogs, sorcerers, fornicators, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Six. Okay. Dogs, why dogs? Because Christ, God doesn't like dogs. It was, a, it was the error of creation. Whoops, made a mistake. Leave, leave it, Dad, it's okay. They'll deal with it. We'll create, we'll create uh, postmen. They'll give dogs something to do. No, why dogs? Remember? Dogs were unclean. Why were dogs unclean? Why were dogs considered unclean in the Old Testament? Recall that a lot of those laws come from the way Egyptians behaved. Right? Where, do you know of any Egyptian god that looks like a dog? No. Cats. What did you think the Egyptians did with the dogs? Yeah. They were objects of, of, of Egyptian cultic sacrifices. So we're, they were considered unclean. So the, the, these were prescriptions given to Egyptians, not because the animal was unclean. There's nothing unclean about the dog. Well, I don't know about that. You know, I don't want to have a dog in my house. But that's a different story. But the point is, it is because the way they were acting, the way they used the animal, that the dog was stuck with being unclean. And eventually, as they went to the Holy Land, and these, pres- these, these uh, practices stopped, it's still stuck. So when they said dogs, they didn't really mean the animal anymore. No more than when we say, give me a break, do we really mean go out and buy me a break, right? Th- th- there's no connection anymore with the physical object. It's just an expression to say those who are outside the covenant of God. That's all. So th- th- those who are outside the covenant are outside. Get it? Yeah. Sorcerers. What are sorcerers? Demon worshippers. That's what they are, right? Fornicators, those who defile the marital covenant. Murderers, idolaters, those who adore other things than God. And everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Why do they love and practice falsehood? Why would somebody love and practice falsehood? Bingo, economic gain. Economic gain. So anyone who's in the business of making money using deceit, hypocrisy, deception, dishonesty for the purpose of economic gain. No one can serve, no one can serve two gods. God and mammon. What does that mean to most of us who are engaged in economic and financial transactions? If we are not on our up and up, if we are not actually examining ourselves, if we don't have a good practice of examination of conscience, the temptation, the temptation 
of falsehood is really great. Example. I'll give you examples. For us, they're really minor, not for God. Copying a CD. Don't even think about it. But it's illegal. Using pirated software. That's no big deal. Really? Really? Cheating our taxes? Ah, well, you know, who cares? Just the government. Really? Who do you think the government is working for? Who are you cheating? The king of kings. That's who you're dealing with. So unless we constantly have this personal relationship with Jesus, where our business has a personal relationship with Jesus, Jesus is our first boss. He's our first customer. He's the one we serve. The chances of us practicing falsehood is really great. So I don't want you to just think in terms of big ticket item because then it's so easy to, to absolve ourselves. There's nothing for us to do. We're just saints. We're, we're here. We've done it. Think small. It's the small things that get us, not the big ones, the small ones. Because they fester. All right. Verse 16, the statement that Jesus sent his angel to testify to John concerning the churches reiterates the beginning of the apocalypse. And this verse reads, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you all. In verse 16, when he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you, he doesn't mean to, in the Greek, he is not saying to you, John. It's not in the singular, it's in the plural. I've sent my angel to all of you. So this is addressed to us directly. With this testimony for the churches, I'm sending it to all of you for what purpose? To save the world? Doesn't say that, does he now? For the churches. His primary concern is the church. Then the world. In this order. Why? Because if the church is not in good shape, how are you going to be able to save the world? I just read today, there's a, uh, a group who just did a study, a poll, among Catholics. 70%, 70% of Catholics in this nation think that there's absolutely nothing wrong in using a condom. 70%. Mexico, Ireland, the same. About 60% think that the law of the church should change. Here we go. So let me answer this question. If you're God, I want you to imagine you're God right now. You're God, and you're looking down, and you're seeing all of this. You're seeing all these Catholics who've committed themselves to a mortal sin. You're seeing them going to hell. You're God. What, what, what do you do? What would you do? Do you love them or do you stop loving them? No, no, wait, wait. Do you stop loving them? No. How do we know that God doesn't do that? Because the Bible says so. What's the Bible? It is a love letter from God to willful, stubborn, rebellious children running away from Him. And God keeps on saying, come back to me. I love you. He doesn't give up on them, would He? So what is He, what is he to do? You're God. What would you do? You love them. You love them so much that you did what? You allowed your own son to die for them. This is how much you love them. What do you do? Do you give them peace and prosperity? 
if you love them, what do you give them? You're going to give them something that's going to take the toy away, right? Aren't you? Did you understand? So those of you in the Middle East, count yourselves as being beloved of God. I mean, I don't understand why we say we should have peace in Lebanon. If I'm God, I will not give peace to Lebanon. Until Christians in Lebanon reform their lives. When I see the billboards, and I see the television, and I see all that nonsense flowing through, how can I say peace? That's what I want to know. Peace for what? So that they can do more of it and go to hell? God doesn't think the way we do. He truly loves us. Did you understand? Brings me back to my original point, see? We're afraid of His love because we're afraid of the cross. Because His love is the way of the cross. Because He knows there's no other way. God is very realistic in His love. Very realistic. He knows us inside and out. You might say He made us. So if we can get on with the program and start loving the world the way Christ loves the world, we change the world. But as long as we are deceived in our thinking about the world and what the world needs, not going to happen. All right. So I already mentioned to you, Jesus identifies himself once more in divine human terms. I am the root and the offspring of David. The expression root and offspring doesn't necessarily mean that he's the root of the tree, but in, 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 it's a Hebraism to indicate that he's the new root. The stump of Jesse would be the expression. He's confirming the prophecy spoken of him. I am the one who confirms, who confirms the, 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 the kingship of David, my servant. I mean, this is, by the way, a way of saying that really David is in heaven. We do, we do in the church recognize that David is in heaven because his name is spoken of him this way, right? If Christ, says, if Christ associates himself with David, David cannot be in hell because Christ would not associate himself with someone who is in hell, okay? But he associates himself with David and notice it's David, not Solomon, which is interesting, right? Okay. And then he says, I am the bright morning star. What does he say? He calls himself the bright morning star. What is the morning star? It's the star that comes before the sun. So the morning star indicates the coming of the new day. So he's indicating that I am the one who brings the new day. Who is also called the morning star? Yes, Lucifer was called the morning star before the fall, no longer after. Our lady is the morning star. Right? Because she's the one who brings the sun. Right? Don't be afraid of the expression morning star. Huh? Verse 17, the spirit and the bride speak with one voice. The spirit and the bride say, come. Why? Because the spirit abides in the bride. Right? And what is the bride? It is the church. So the church is constantly saying to the Lord, Come. Come, Lord Jesus. What do we mean by come? Are we saying, we want you to come right now so that the end of the world happens? Is that what we say when we say, come, Lord Jesus? No. 
In the book of, of the Didache, I think I recorded this somewhere here. In the book of the Didache, which is, the book of the Didache was used, was written around 60 AD. So it's very, very early Christian writing. And it was used to teach those who are going to teach the faith, the didacs, right? Those, the teachers of the faith. In part 10, verse 6, we read the following exhortation. Let grace, Jesus, come and may this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If anyone is holy, let him come. If anyone is not, let him repent. This is part of the Mass. Maran Atta, come Lord. Amen. Commentators note the idea that the Lord come was used in early Christianity to underscore the validity of curses in the context of the Lord's Supper. So when they say, come Lord Jesus, they mean it the way he means it here, I'm coming soon. To do what? Blessings and curses. So when the church exhort the Lord to come, what is the church doing? It is asking the king to show forth his rule. That is the coming of the Lord we're asking for. Why? Because as Septurion says, we want to delay the end as far as possible. We are not anxious for the end days to come. Why? Because we want more souls to, be, to go to heaven. Why? For the greater glory of God. That's why. So when we say, come Lord Jesus, we're not saying, come as in, come and just put a close to all of this because we're really tired. You know, enough is enough. That's it. We're done. And please come before the taxes. That'll help us. Okay. No, it, we mean what I just said. Come and exercise judgment. All right. And the last exhortation, 18 through 20. In verse, 20, in, in verse 18... I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. How do we know this is a covenantal uh, sealing? We know it from the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, we, we hear this in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, and then chapter 12, verse 32. 4, 1 and 2, and 12, 32. Here are the statutes. You shall not add to the word, nor take away from it. And it will be, when he hears the words... Every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. It's a way of closing, of sealing a covenantal document. That's the purpose of this. And that's what Christ is doing. He's sealing it by his name, which means it stands till the very end of time. All right. So, in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. As I said earlier, St. John testified, the angel testified, the spirit testified, the church testified, and now Christ testifies. To impress upon the people how serious this is. You must take this seriously. You are bound to it as Catholics. Okay? And then, in verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. When St. John says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints, why is he giving them the grace now? Because he thinks Mass is done, let's go. Why is he saying, the grace be with you? For a very practical reason. This is no high flight theology. This is very practical. All right. 
I basically gave you a manual and I asked you to build for me a spaceship. Okay? And a minute ago, before I gave you that manual, you were holding a, a brand new screwdriver. That's all you got. I just gave you this manual. I'm saying, okay, you're going to build this to me. And I say to you, don't worry, you can do it. Why did I just say that to you? So I just can get you to go away? No, I'm trying to what? Yeah. Okay? When he says, the grace be with you, he intends that you and I are going to receive the grace we need from the Lord Jesus so that we can keep all the words recorded here. That's why he's saying that. Okay. So at the end of the Mass, when the priest says, peace be with you, why is he saying that? Because we're bickering all along? We spent an hour arguing with him, is that it? And now he decided to say, okay, I'm giving you, why is he giving us the peace of Christ? Why? I mean, we don't really think about those things, we just do them. We're so, you know, car wash Catholics sometimes, just you know, press on this button, do that, say amen here, be done, let's go. Why is he saying, peace be with you? Why is that the final blessing? Because we're going to need it. It's a very practical thing. After the celebration, after the wedding has been, has been uh, completed, after, the, 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 after we be here, right, in this cloud between heaven and earth, and we've celebrated our communion as one family with God representing the church in heaven, we've been with angels, we've been with saints, we've received the greatest miracle there is, the Lord Himself. Where are we going to go after that? Back out there. And what do we need? The peace. Are we availing ourselves of that peace throughout the week? I have the peace of Christ. It allows me to do things. That's what's going on here. So, in summary, the book of Revelation is, from beginning to end, liturgy. Liturgy, liturgy. What we read here is almost antiphonal. We have St. John, we have the angel, we have Christ. All participating in this exchange. It is liturgy. The, the tree of life, the symbol of baptism, it is Eucharistic. It is here to show us how Christ rules, how Christ will rule, and how Christ deals with His church and with the world. Time and time again across all the ages until the end of time. This is a book of hope. This is a book that tells us that Christ is in control. And the only problem we have to solve is, do you trust me? Do you love me? That's all. Because if we truly trust Christ and we truly love Him, nothing else matters. Because He's in control. So, for this period of Advent... Why don't we work on this? Imagine yourself sitting in front of Christ and imagining you're holding a bowl full of all the anxieties and all the fears and all the problems and all the difficulties you have. And it's pretty dark and it's pretty black and it's ugly and it stinks. And then imagine that you're holding this bowl and you're putting it into the hands of Our Lady. 
it's hard for us if we love Our Lady to do that because it's ugly. We're giving her really an ugly thing. And then imagine that this whole ugly thing, when it touches her hand, dissolves completely and nothing else is left. And then in her turn, she takes a rose and gives it to us. And so anytime you're tempted, anytime you're facing a difficulty, anytime you're going through pain, anytime you have a really, really tough moment, turn around and say, Mary, I give it to you. Give me the peace of Christ. That's her mission. She's our mother. She can do that. So that we can truly live Christmas the way Christ intended for us to live Christmas. As a moment of joy where we rejoice in His coming in our life until we one day go to Him and live an eternal Christmas in heaven with all the angels and all the saints. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.